From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Did you call him Mr. Bonneville at the start? No, I called him Mr. Brown. Oh, Mr. Brown, yeah. yeah. Paddington, OK, very good. Yeah. One in four of our children have overweight or obesity, but four in five don't. Uh, and that's pretty good in the toxic environment that we have. Well, so a world champion, a record holder, anything else you had on your list? Uh, Olympic champion. Right, right. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, the 13-year-old from Galway cracking up Hugh Bonneville. You need to step away from the three-for-two Easter eggs. And how to win a World Swimming Championships medal. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that now doesn't know what to do with all these supersized, chunky, salted, caramel, KitKat-flavoured egg things. Let's start Playback Daily today with Oliver Callan doing some musing on the leap day that's in it. Well, he got there eventually. But yeah, it's the 29th of January. Someone was saying this morning that if you look at your phone, uh, sort of 29th of February, uh, so if you're looking at photos on your phone, you know the memories you get from your smart device. Uh, usually you get a memory. This this thing happened this time last year and over the years. Look at your memories for today. There aren't many for obvious reasons. And there are weird quirks, people in paid employment, you're working for free today. But then the stuff that we pay for annually, we're getting an extra, an extra free day. We're getting one free day for, so your your rent perhaps, with your mortgage payments. Yeah, I think mortgage, possibly, yeah. Any insurances you have, a gym membership, you'd have to use it obviously. And your broadband, any streaming services, good and the bad, you know, yin and the yang. That's what we look for here. The yin and the yang, eh? That's what it's all about, I suppose. Well, isn't it? I don't know. So let's move on. There's an interesting story here I want to tell you about busking. But busking is a kind of a fascinating thing. Some people are irritated by it. Some people love it. They stand in the big circle and they half block the street. I think it brings a bit of joy into the world. But there's a Dublin busker who started a campaign and she wants to stop people from touching the bust of Molly Malone, the Molly Malone statue on Suffolk Street. Trinity student Tilly Cripwell who busks in the area for about 10 hours every week. She's calling on people to leave Molly alone, if you understand. Uh, she launched a protest because she's there, obviously, for so long and she sees what people are doing around the statue of Molly Malone. And she's saying this awful tr- supposed tradition of let, you know, grabbing, uh, touching the statue's breasts for good luck by tourists uh, is a terrible thing. She sees it happen all the time. She says the majority of people will touch her for good luck. It's a misogynistic tradition. People clamour around her. They kiss her on the cheek. They kiss her boobs. It's reducing her to this derision and not giving her the status of being a national treasure, which is why there's a statue. I walk by the Oscar Wilde statue in Marion Square every day. You don't see people rubbing him for good luck. And there are always people around the Oscar Wilde statue in Marion Square in Dublin. And so she says, when I see men and women touching the Molly Malone statue, their kids are looking at them. So what example does this set? Why is it a part of culture here? And of course, reminding everyone that the Molly Malone statue was vandalised a number of occasions last year. People writing stuff guess where, uh, across the bosoms. So that's, um, it's a grim thing. But I think she has a point, even though it's a statue, it's what it represents and so on. And for the buskers in Cork City, if you work or shop down there, uh, the draft bylaws are being drawn up to regulate buskers uh, down in Cork City, uh, specifically with street performers who take to fancy dress and have very, very loud PA systems. A lot of people are annoyed by the, the loud systems down there. Um, according to one of the councillors involved drawing up the regulations, there will be measures to tackle men dressed as leprechauns. <laughs> you know the sort. Who do not represent local talented artists. I wondered if the word talented important there. Um, I'm sure the tourists delight to see fellas um, play acting about dressed as a leprechaun. 
Uh, but no, they're going to be bylaws. They're going to crack down on that, Cork City Council says. The Environment Committee is going to meet, meet next week and draw up the laws for that. So it'll be very, very strict rules to prevent people being tortured um, by fellas dressed as leprechauns. Okay, that's that's what's happening there. Yes, the USA has the CIA and Ireland has people dressed as leprechauns. Look, if it gets the desired results, I guess. Meanwhile, Oliver paid tribute to the late stand-up comedian and Curb Your Enthusiasm star Richard Lewis. Uh, some sad news in the world of comedy today. Richard Lewis, um, a major, major stand-up comedian in American culture and a star in Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, where he stars opposite Larry David and they have this kind of hostile friendship and they're always going to restaurants and complaining about minor grievances that become huge problems for them. Um, so Richard Lewis has died, sadly. He was 76 years of age. He was best known for talking about his various neuroses as a stand-up comedian. And last year he revealed he had Parkinson's disease and he was retiring from stand-up, but he was able to star in season 12, which is the final season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which was the follow-up to Seinfeld, of course. And um, he died peacefully at his home in LA, his agent said, after suffering a heart attack. Uh, but he is in the last season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is actually going out right now. And there's an episode being added every week. You can get it on Now TV in Ireland or I presume it goes out on Sky at some point as well. Um, so Larry David obviously leads the tributes. He said, Richard, Lewis and I were born three days apart in the same hospital. And for most of my life, he's been like a brother to me. He had that rare combination of being the funniest person and the sweetest. But today made me sob. And for that, I'll never forgive him. Jamie Lee Curtis, um, she starred opposite him in a series called Anything But Love. And she paid tribute saying... He is the reason I'm sober. He helped me. I am forever grateful for him for that act of grace alone. He found love with his wife, Joyce. And that, of course, besides his sobriety, is what mattered most to him. I'm weeping as I write this. Strange way of saying thank you to a sweet and funny man. Rest in laughter, Richard. He was an interesting figure because um, in 1994, he began his, his um, uh, recovery from alcoholism. He's a recovering addict all his life. 30 years sober. Am- amazing. And there are lots of people coming out in Hollywood, producers and actors saying that he helped them become sober. But let's take a clip from Kirby Enthusiasm. As I said, it is two friends kind of rubbing each other up all the wrong way. And this is Larry David typically getting involved in Richard Lewis's... It, they're playing semi-fictionalised versions of themselves. Uh, getting involved in his various girlfriends and relationships as they're sitting down for lunch. Oh, oh, oh. honey. Forgot your drink. Thanks. Oh, man, the table's gorgeous. Hey. Huh. You ever called her honey before? I doubt it, no. How many dates have you been on? Two. <laughs> you just gave her premature honey. I gotta tell you something. A premature honey? Yeah. Premature. Too soon for honey. Your honey's way down the line. You gotta spend a weekend together or something in the country before you can jump to honey. I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to jump ahead with the relationship, but it doesn't work. You got caught. You're blowing this way out of proportion. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She doesn't care. Okay. Dr. Phil, you right. know what you're talking you about. Oh, you were right, Larry. I blew it with Rhonda. I told her it was a premature, honey. And, and she, she's been cold ever since. Yeah, it was bad. I said, honey, what's I the big deal? I told no mushrooms in this thing. I said no mushrooms, right? I've lost I a potential bride, and you're talking about salad. <laughs> I blew it. You, you, saw, you saw a wipe there, and you, you seized on it with a honey. There you go, the late Richard Lewis. It's a good tip as well for the leap year day. You know, no premature honeys. It sounds like a double entendre, but it's a line from Curb featuring the late Richard Lewis. No time for our sorrows now, though, because we have to check in on everybody's favourite Kevin. Now, Kevin Costner, we're big followers of Kevin Costner's career in this show. Yellowstone, of course, huge, huge show. 
I think it got to many series that we up to Yellowstone, six, seven, something like that. But there was a big thing, uh, hoo-ha, because Kevin Costner quit halfway through making the last series of Yellowstone, fell out with the director, and um, he his character was written out halfway through. I haven't got there yet. I don't know what's happened. But he's written out of the character, the main character, John Dutton, the Dutton Ranch in Yellowstone. And the reason why is, of course, he went off to make his huge Western gamble, they're calling it. He's released the trailer for uh, Horizon, which is a four, a grand four-part Western saga, saga, as in four movies directed by Kevin Costner. Fierce, exciting altogether because um, he has took out such a huge loan. He took out a loan on his Santa Barbara mansion to finance the film, which is a four, four movie saga. Uh, a lot riding on it for him. Part one is the trailer is out, as we're saying, and it seems to promise all the hallmarks of a great Western complete with sweeping shots of the American plains. Yes, I'm in already. Thrilling horseback chases, sieges, quick draw gunplay. There's also an appropriately stacked cast. His uh, Costner, his Yellowstone co-star Denny Houston is in it. And Luke, Luke Wilson is there as well. We haven't heard anything from him. Here's a clip from the trailer for Horizon. You and I are standing guard in one of the last great open spaces. These people think they're so tough enough, smart enough, mean enough. All this will be there someday. There's no army of this earth that's going to stop those wagons coming. Oh, there's wagons and everything coming there as well. That's great. Uh, uh, part one, by the way, is going to be in the cinemas in the summertime. He's putting out the first two parts. So part one is on the end of June and part two will follow in August. And then part three and four haven't even been shot yet. So uh, a lot of people wondering, will the the guy who took Dances with Wolves all the way to Best Picture win at the Oscars? Will he manage to strike Hollywood magic again? Will be. Might be paying attention to that. I have to say I'd be surprised, honestly, if we ever see parts three and four, but God knows I've been wrong before. But I'm not wrong when I say that that's where we're going to leave the morning musings from Oliver Callan for this Leap Day. The Fiscal Advisory Council has warned that Ireland's transition to electric vehicles as well as the retrofitting of people's homes, could have a significant impact on the state's finances. This morning, Michael McMahon, Professor of Economics at the University of Oxford and Acting Chairperson of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, spoke to Claire Byrne about the findings. The main impact, actually, in our study of the sort of wider climate transition um, in terms of the impact on government revenue is because of the electrification of the stock of vehicles. Now, this is really not to, to you know, set off alarm bells, but just to get people thinking that this is something we have to plan for because we, we treat currently, and this, all this analysis assumes the current tax system is basically kept as is, but we, we treat petrol or diesel vehicles differently in the tax system than we do electrical vehicles, so excise taxes, excise duties, VAT, motor tax, VRT. These are all treated differently. So if we're successful, and, and as a society... The science tells us we want to be successful of transitioning from a stock that's mainly petrol and diesel uh, to a cleaner stock of electrical vehicles. That's going to have these costs. And as, as you alluded to, we estimate that um, it would be about, in today's money, about 2.5 billion by 2030 and then rising um, to, to, to sort of over 4 billion by the, by the 2040s. Yeah, and and I, I hear you when you say you don't want to set off the alarm bells, Michael, but 2030 is uh, only six years away and the fines, I understand, begin to accumulate in 2027. So we're very close to the date when the money starts racking up. 
Oh no, no, that's right. And 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 you know, there's um, of, of course being further ahead now would be what we want. Uh, you know, the uh, EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency's analysis says that we're not on track to meet to meet our goals. So so we are going to have to do a lot more in the coming years. But the question, the, the point about not alarming people on, 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 the, on the tax side is, um, this just it, you know, reveals what a successful tri- climate transition would look like for the government um, tax revenue numbers. So, mm. Governments should plan for this, think about how they would either fill that or compensate uh, with less spending elsewhere. That's that's the sort of planning that we need for, for, for managing this transition. And it is manageable, I think. So this uh, gap is going to have to be filled. Government needs to decide how they're going to do that. That's right, yeah. Um, so, you know, at a very basic level, you either cut spending elsewhere or you find another source of tax. And um, there, there have been... Um, the, the 2023 tax strategy group um, discussed, you know, various options for filling this. And, you know, some of them, if you want to also tie them into the climate transition to sort of help it on its way, would be also to encourage people to drive less. So congestion charges, less driving in cities, um, higher charges for parking, charging by the distance you travel or by the weight of your vehicle. So, so there are ways that they could do it. But these are ultimately choices for the government. We're not here to recommend one or the other, but but we would recommend that planning should start, and as you alluded to, should start yesterday. Mm-hmm. Because the government, the ambition is that it loses this revenue by by electrifying the, the transport stock, as you say. You know, it's a strange position for the government to be in, that you hope to reach a point where you're losing all of this money out of your revenue pot. You've got to come up with a plan then to replace that. That may not come, though, from the transport system or in transport strategy. It could be taxation coming from another source. That's right. You know, ultimately, this will be a decision for uh, the government. One thing that we do argue, though, is that not just on this, but also on the other side, because it's not just revenue that's affected. And as you say, the the success is the loss of revenue. Um, You know, the the other side of it is that, that part of the transition will involve, say, supports to the farming sector, also supports to households and businesses for retrofitting and making their their properties more energy efficient. There's a big question mark over how much of that that cost will be supported by the state and how much will be borne by the individual entities. One thing we would argue strongly for is that plans put in place now can provide certainty and certainty will be helpful in getting firms and households you know, and farms along this, this transition journey and not sitting wondering whether I should wait for a few years to buy an electric car because then I'll get bigger incentives. Mm-hmm. If we had the plans in place now when we sort of across government and across society as much as possible could agree that this is the path we're going to follow, I think that would help people with planning. On the other, and we'll come to those issues, farming and retrofitting in just a moment, but on the other side of the balance sheet, Michael, there are things that might accrue that are less tangible, like general benefits that might emerge, health benefits, so uh, uh, reducing costs to the health service if you have all electric cars on the roads because you reduce pollution. That's right, that's right. And, 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 and we're very clear that that is not something that we have, um, we have uh, quantified as yet. Uh, it certainly warrants more work. Um, it's very difficult because, of course, the, the effects, say, on uh, air and water pollution maybe, maybe will be 
sort of largely determined by Ireland, but the overall effects, say, rising sea levels, are not going to be determined just by Ireland. So there's also the consideration of how successful the rest of the world is in, in doing this. But you're absolutely right. You know, when we get to that point, we may we may accrue benefits that allow us to, 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 to spend more in, in, in other areas because we're spending less on health or um, on, on other things. You know, one that you haven't mentioned is is also the sort of the physical costs of climate damage. If, if we are successful in either making, you know, our infrastructure and society more robust or we limit the extent of these extreme events, there would also potentially be savings on, on, on what are currently projected to be quite scary. You, you, your news article mentioned the sort of the increased likelihood of the flooding there, there are there are numerous projections out there that suggest that extreme weather events are going to get more and more likely, and we know they bring big costs both to individuals and typically also to the state. Yeah. So reducing those would be a sort of a benefit as well of, okay. of getting this right. And we've seen those costs accrue very recently uh, with the floods that we had in 2023. Retrofitting homes then, that's another big one people are concerned about. And as you say, there's some uncertainty there. You know, They know they will get some help from the state as it stands. They have to speculate or up front up a certain amount of money in order to make those big changes to the homes. That scheme that we have in place, I know you've looked at that, but you've also looked at a couple of different scenarios. So what's your assessment on that front? Uh, yeah, so so I mean, again, this is this is ultimately a, a decision to be made by the government. But but again, certainty sooner would help is exactly, you know, what is the exact nature of what's needed. So we have money aside for lots of infrastructure and lots of support in, in even the National Development Plan. We, we have to think very carefully, and, and I think importantly in a very joined-up way, about how we can make these schemes not only well-known and, and, and well-taken up, but also uh, make it easier for households to make the transition sooner. There, there is a huge benefit to doing these things in a sort of what we would call front-loaded way. So if we do more now, that's better than sort of getting to 2028, 29 and trying to rush it in, not just for the climate, sort of the accumulated climate effects that we would help, but actually more importantly uh, from, from our side, just the economic ability to do it. We know the construction sector is under some strain that, you know, we have a huge amount of housing still to build. Um, So having a sort of a scheme that does this over many years is potentially just easier for the the whole economy to deal with. And and, and that's one of the messages we try to put out there. Whichever decision governments take on this, and ideally governments agree across the House so that we don't worry that one election suddenly causes the whole system to change. But whatever we agree, if we can get it in sooner and get action being taken now that will ultimately make the whole transition easier both for individuals and firms but also for the for for the fiscal cost. Michael McMahon Professor of Economics at the University of Oxford and the acting chairperson of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council talking about the cost to the exchequer of Ireland's climate goals on Today with Claire Byrne this morning. The new government redress scheme for people who were in mother and baby homes comes into effect next month. On this afternoon's Live Line, Miriam spoke to Joe Duffy about her experiences of being in a mother and baby home as a child. Miriam, uh, you were three months in Castle Pollard. Yes, I was. And then I was moved to Foynes for a further three months under the care of the nuns that looked after me in Castle Pollard. Okay. Um, and you were there as a Joe- child. 
I was there as a, well I was there for, until October I was born in March and I was there until October okay. but Joe um, first of all uh, there's a lot of people that have been in mother and baby homes that are suffering with ill health through to the fact that they were fed uh, as, at a week old with porridge and a lot yeah. of people have health issues yeah. and may I also say at 56 years of age that the trauma of being adopted whether it has been a good adoption or a bad adoption. Mm -hmm. And thankfully for me, it has been a wonderful adoption. But that trauma lives with me every day. And that biological stranger within me still seeks to know who I am. Mm. And the other sad thing I have to say about the redress, I watched it live uh, when it was on in the doll during lockdown. There are a lot of women who, uh, through shame, will not apply for the redress. Hundreds of women. I could name 50 of them off the top of my head through my experience in the Castle Pollard group. And they won't apply for the redress screens and their children won't get anything oh, either. Why won't they apply, Miriam? Because of the shame of having children. There's so many women in Ireland today oh my God. who are living with the secret of having had a baby in the 60s and 70s. And it's such a sad, sad story, Joe, because... Like, I know having connected with my mother, mm. she doesn't acknowledge me. And I have many yeah, friends yeah. from the Castle Pollard group that's mother will not acknowledge that they were born. So there are hundreds out there that are not going to apply for the redress, which is very sad. And there are a lot of people that have died since 2020. One mother I remember who was in Castle Pollard and was living for her few bob, as she'd call it, has died. So her family are entitled to nothing. So the whole thing is very, very sad. And remember, Miriam, it seems that some of the configuration about the six-month cut-off for children is the cost. And the government at the time said, Roger Gorman said, 34,000 women would be eligible. But uh, from what what you're saying is 34,000 may be eligible, but they they all won't apply. Absolutely not, Joe. I can guarantee you that there are women living, maybe your next-door neighbour, women beside you, who have had children and cannot acknowledge it. There's a lot of them that won't be applying for the redress because it's bringing up hurt and they haven't dealt with the past. And that's what I'm always saying. It's so important that we talk to our mothers and say, Mom, is there any hope that you would have had a baby? Because there are people out there suffering with this. There's no shame in it, Miriam. Now there isn't. No, No. there's no shame. And there never never should have been. Never. Well, that's I know that, Joe. Because every person is here for every person is here for a reason. I know, I know. And I brought a lot of joy to my parents. Of course. But it's just the women out there. They have no support. They're living with secrets, and that's the sad reality of it. Stay with us, Miriam. Margaret Beer is in Dublin. Margaret, good afternoon. Hi there, Joe. How are you? Good, Margaret. Go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, by coincidence, I'm adopted, but that's not actually why I rang. Okay. You were talking about the, the de facto adoptions to the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my mum, my adoptive, my beloved adoptive mum was a hairdresser. Okay. And every six weeks, the matron would come in to get her colour and perm done mm. because she was going to the United States with three babies mm. and her assistants also had three babies. And that was every six weeks. And my mum was just one hairdresser in Dublin. And where were they coming from? The Navan Road? Where were they? The Chanel? I don't. I, to be, okay. No, I honestly don't okay. know. But the, ma- the matron would get I the hair done on, to accompany the, the children. Ma- yeah. The matron would get the hair done every six weeks with my mum. 
And because she was going to the States, it was quite a normal thing to do. Well, sorry, normal is awful word to use, yeah. but it, it was the done thing. Yeah, yeah. And every six weeks, now they could have been from all over the country. I don't yeah, know. Course, yeah, yeah. But, but anyway, three babies every six weeks. Sorry, six babies because she had her assistant nurse. And the air hostesses only helped. They, they were never yeah. asked to bring okay, the babies. Okay. I'm just correcting that. No, that's, that's, that's a good point. And also that, well, the air hostesses, would, would, any, any, any baby that's brought onto a plane, oh, the air, the air crew are brilliant. They're always brilliant. Yeah, but they had three. And as I said, mummy was just one hairdresser in Dublin. And it's, it's six babies every six weeks. And I'm going back to the 50s now. I was born in 53 yeah, yeah. and was adopted in 55. So it's, it's just coincidence I'm adopted too. But And that's not what I'm on about. I'm yeah. just it's just correcting the, okay. the misapprehension that these babies were handed to an air hostess. Well, and I'm was, not saying it was any kinder. Yeah, but the, but, but they there were was 2,000 children apparently. 2,000 children were... Uh, well, what's the word? Traffic is probably... I don't Trans- know. Yeah, from Ireland to the States between know. the forties and yeah. the seventies. Wow, two thousand. Actually, They're I would sold. have thought more, Joe. I, well, this I don't know whether they were sold or not. Report. Now, again, yeah, okay, Catholic okay. homes were were paramount. Yeah, yeah of course. It didn't yeah. matter what else you were, you know, but uh, it had to be Catholic homes. Oh, and it was, was all so, done well, Remember, the John, John Charles McQuaid was running. <gasps> we won't talk about him. Yeah, but he was running, and he insisted. He and he. He didn't. He didn't see. He didn't see the moat in his eye when he said that. Um, once they're going to, once they're going to Catholic families, he didn't say, "Hang That's on, right. why are they going to? Why are they being sent to America? Why are they being sent mm-hmm. to America?" Paul, you you mentioned that earlier, um, about America, but and and watching Philomena, which is about the child being sent to America, and Philomena eventually finding with a journalist finding which is based on a true story, uh, finding the going to Shan Ross Abbey and being given the runaround, and um, then going to America and finding her son. But at that stage, he had he had passed away. Um, why why do you find it so unbearable, unbearably unwatchable? Um, I'd say the word would be frustration. Um, that's the only way I can describe it is that the the, Europe, the state the, 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 the power of the state and the power of the church of the time mm-hmm. um, basically it was the helplessness of the situation and for want of a better word in the movie the, the, mm-hmm. the, the indoctrination of, the, of Philomena herself who, who, who was actually still, still in awe of the, the, the facility and the yeah. nuns, in other words, put in their fault. It was, a, it was a combination of faults, Joe. That's Paul joining the discussion on this afternoon's Live Line about mother and baby homes in light of, as Joe mentioned, the government's upcoming redress scheme coming into place. Young Kiri Flaherty, 13, from County Galway, stars alongside Noel Fielding and Hugh Bonneville in the Apple TV Plus show... The completely made-up adventures of Dick Turpin. Kiri and her dad Shane joined Oliver Callan in studio this morning. You're from Galway, aren't you? Yes, I am. And live still living there. Still living in okay, Galway. Yeah. Good, staying nice and grounded, like Killian Murphy. You know, still lives in Ireland, <laughs> Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, so you're the two of you are often on a film set, often on TV sets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I we have our own business at home. So yeah. um, it's always me that gets going. Poor Mammy has to stay in mind the shop. <laughs> 
So it's a florist, isn't it? We have a flower shop in Galway. Yeah, Lovely. yeah, yeah. That always seems like a nice life, anyway. Uh, it, it looks it. It looks it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's hard. It's, it's, it's hard. It's no. hard behind the scenes. It's, it's. Don't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't judge a, a florist by the the nice smells and colours. No. I think she's grown up watching her mother uh, behind the counter, and that's where the the, the little Karen. Um, Great research. Of. Yeah, yeah, that's your yeah. character in the Apple Plus yeah, in the yeah. comedy series. Yeah. That, yes. that's the little Karen is the innkeeper. Yeah, so she's the landlady of the pub, and she has to put up with some tough guys and annoying highwaymen. So kind of one minute she's. Giving out to men because they're all rough and rowdy. The next minute when Dick comes in, it's a babysitting club. <laughs> and you, describe the, the tone of your character towards Dick Turpin. He's a bit of a fool. Yeah, so uh, Dick Turpin is, he's kind of, our Dick Turpin, well, he's, you know, he's a bit kind of, you know, he's trying to come up with these crazy ideas and mm. this new way of being a highwayman. And while little Karen kind of supports him, she also, you know, it's dangerous, like you have to mind yourself. So she's kind of a bit like his mammy in a way. Same with me and Noel in real life. <laughs> no fielding. Yeah. Because so, uh, little Karen is the boss. Yeah, she's the boss. And, you know, she runs a tight ship. She, you know, because you're highwaymen nights and the highwaymen are coming in and they're all rough. And she's like, we just calm down, like. <laughs> and then you have him in the middle of it and then he's trying to make his big statements. And just. Do you know what's brilliant about it is because I think the entire cast is all British and it's very British style comedy and then you hear an Irish accent because you're playing in your own accent. Yeah, I am. Was that on purpose? Did they say stick to your accent? Or uh, no, they thought that I was born in Ireland but I lived in London and then it wasn't, it wasn't planned. It was just that I had an Irish accent and we said that I could do English or Peach, you know, if they wanted me to do yeah, it. Yeah. But they said, no, we stick with your own accent, you know, so don't go change that. It was, it was great. It works really well. And uh, we'll play a clip of it here and then we'll find out about your background, how you end up on such a big show. And your dad kicked you out. Yeah, I can't believe it. I've got no job, I've got nowhere to live. All I own in the world is this sewing machine and these powerful purple shoes. Cool. You haven't got anywhere I could store them, have you? Yeah, put them in the cupboard. Brilliant. Thanks, little Karen. You're a diamond. Whoa, that is a big cupboard. No, not that door. It's next one along. That's secret passage. I didn't know you had a secret passage. Well, it's a secret, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I guess if everyone knew about it, it'd just be a passage. That's not nearly as cool, is it? <laughs> You're laughing. You're laughing listening to that as well. Yeah, it's hilarious. And the part at the end, it's really funny because that wasn't originally in the script. It was just me and Nolan rehearsals. We're kind of just messing around with this. Go away. Yeah, and he kind of just added on to it and I added on to it and it kind of went like that. And it was kind of like, we looked away and then it was just light bulb moments and then we started shouting to the director, what do you think, what do you think? And the writer was like, yeah, love it, add it in. Like, I didn't think that that would happen on such on these big shows. Yeah, it's great because, you know, Apple TV Plus, obviously, they produce amazing things and mm. the writing is so clever and amazing that you don't have to change stuff and everything's just so perfect, but me and Noel kind of have a habit of changing one or two things or one or two things and adding stuff in. And our script supervisor, I feel really sorry for her, you know. She said, and she said, I love you individually and I absolutely hate you when you're together. Like when she sees us in rehearsal, she just runs. That this, the script supervisor tried to keep you on script, as the job will suggest. But yeah. you and comedy legend Noel Fielding are rewriting as you're, as you're shooting. Yeah, because obviously Noel's one of the writers as well, so we're kind of 
sometimes and you know they're so great at big talk productions you know they are very versatile and we go through things and you might say you know that works now that doesn't work but you know they're a great company to work for as well because like and they're great because they always include me in the decisions as well you know we work as a team we say what do you think now let's add that in yeah let's you know and then we kind of just flow with it but as I say the writing's so amazing there isn't a lot to be done you don't need to anything you're just having great crack it's the best time ever. It comes across as well um, in the show. It come, it's very rude to ask a lady her age, but I think there's a cut-off point. Uh, it's here. fine. <laughs> I'll forgive you. What age are you? I'm 13. You're 13 now. And um, when this was shot, it's a while ago, is it? Yeah, so the pilot um, was shot when I was 11. I wasn't even a week turned 11 at that point. Uh, it was at the start, we were looking at the dates. I wasn't actually supposed to be home for my birthday, so my mum was delighted. But then she'd nothing planned for my birthday, so it was like, panic, <laughs> find a cake, run, do something, yeah, let's go to a restaurant. Just yeah, just panic. And uh, 11 being a special time, you're a big Harry Potter fan. Yes. So you had quite a magical uh, turning 11. I did. And that was exactly the birthday I planned for. You know, the birthday where you think you're just going to have a cake, a little party with your friends. You don't really think you're going to be going over to London working and meeting these amazing you know comedy legends and yeah. working on such an amazing production and Hugh Bonneville is in it as well he is yeah he's so kind and amazing but I freaked out when I met him because I've been watching Paddington since I was five I always loved Miss Brennan I just thought he was so funny and I thought he was kind of like dad in a way <laughs> how so and yeah, so because he plays a very gormless, silly character, kind of yeah, yeah, boring, exactly, yeah. exactly, kind of you know, don't be doing this, don't be doing that, you know, a bit like that. But he has a heart as well. But you're I, pointing at your dad. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank God it's radio. I know. <laughs> and um, no, but I freaked out when I met you, and I was like an idiot. I was like, oh my God, I. Hi, Mr. Brown, and I was freaking out, and now we just laugh at us, and now we just laugh about us. Did you call him Mr. Bonneville at the start? No, I called him Mr. Brown. Oh, Mr. Brown, yeah, yeah. Baddington, okay, very good. Yeah. And uh, really he did a good laugh, but he was, he was sound. Oh, he was amazing, he was just so nice to me. And he shook my hand, I was like, I'm never washing this hand again. <laughs> but now we're like best friends, and now we're just like, he'd laugh at us and say, yeah. I love from your point of view that, you know, it's all Paddington, whereas everyone else is just thinking Downton Abbey for, for Hugh Bonneville. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're on the better side of that. Absolutely. Um, how did this all uh, come about? I mean, you're obviously, you're still in school. Are you in secondary school now? Secondary school, Shane, yeah. you can come in any time yeah, you want. Yeah. I know there's hardly anything for you to do here. No, it's okay. <laughs> she, she, she does what she always does. Yeah, yeah, keeps going. Yeah, um, she was in performing arts, really. A friend of ours had a performing arts school and she said, uh, you, you need to send her in to me. And um, she was always a little bit theatrical and that kind of thing and liked music and dance. Mum said I was always dramatic. Loved ABBA from a very young age for don't know why. No harm in that. But uh, yeah and um, so it just grew from there and somebody had said would you put her in for an audition for a TV ad or somebody was oh no 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 no, we're not going down that road. So that happened and you were the the road you're talking about is just doing extras just for a TV ad and um, yeah she'd, she'd done a couple of little commercials and she was doing extras on them for a while and she seemed to Love it. I was you, just fascinated by the yeah. whole thing, the process of making it. And even though I was only six, I still found everything like so fascinating. It was just like, wow. it was like a five-year-old in a sweet shop. The irrepressible Kiri Flaherty, star of the new Apple TV Plus show, The Completely Made-Up Adventures of Dick Turpin, talking, along with her dad Shane, to Oliver Callan this morning.
You could be forgiven for thinking that Easter Sunday is this weekend, given the proliferation of Easter eggs and other chocolate-adjacent merch on the shelves of supermarkets. Claire Byrne spoke this morning to Professor Donal O'Shea, HSE lead on obesity, about the shop's push to get beleaguered parents to buy lots of chocolate for their children. At, at every stage in the year, the food and drinks industry get uh, more and more previous in their promotion of high fat, high salt, high sugar, ultra processed offerings. Selection boxes are there at back to school time. Yeah, they were August. there in August, I remember yeah, clearly. August. I mean, yeah. I saw that I went in and seen Christmas selection boxes in August and it's cheaper to buy the selection box than it is to buy the bars that are in, in it individually. So, uh, fantastic pri- pricing and marketing. Easter eggs are a particular thing. And, and the biggest trouble I've ever got into was a comment about five or six years ago where I said, uh, you know, I like chocolate. And every kid should have an Easter egg, but just one Easter egg. One Easter egg on Easter Sunday, that's it. Uh, one Easter egg on Easter Sunday is how it came into being. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came into being at a time where actually lots of kids gave up sweets for Lent because Lent was a thing. Now Lent is much less of a thing in terms of people giving things up. Uh, and what you have is you are encouraged to uh, purchase uh, as many of these eggs as you can throughout Lent. And we know what happens when those uh, eggs or biscuits or any of those ultra processed products are in the house because the human brain is wired to consume. Yeah, I mean, I was in the supermarket last night with my children and I just found myself running past (laughs) the display to try and uh, distract and get away from them. But it is difficult to do when they're there and they're really good value. It's it's tempting. Yeah, no. And uh, Aoife Hearn, who I worked with years ago on uh, Operation Transformation, she sent me a clip of her child uh, and she videoed her child going along uh, the offerings in the supermarket. And the oohs and the ahs out of, I think she's four or five, mm-hmm. uh, out of uh, the child. Uh, uh, just from the visual impact. Of the colours. Uh, because and the, the colours yeah. are designed nice. and the products are displayed at a level that targets a five-year-old. That There's different products that target a seven-year-old. There's different products that target a 12-year-old. And they're displayed at those children's heights eye level because eye level is bi level. Okay, it's really so it's really planned. Can we go back to the trouble that you got into when you said that every child should only have one Easter egg? Because that's I think probably myself and yourself, that's where how we grew up, that's what we got. We got one Easter egg. Now though, granny and granddad, maybe on both sides, aunts and uncles, maybe on both sides, buy Easter eggs. And there's a bit of a competition going on in the house as to who got the most yeah, and Easter I, eggs. I, yeah. You could end up with eight or nine of them. I, I mean I think the average is is about six Mm. Uh, and uh, that is too much. It's too much at a time when we do have an obesity epidemic that is having a real impact. So the patients that we're admitting through the emergency department, many are with the complications of obesity. So we have to acknowledge that and we have to look where can we improve things. And, you know, being a little controlled in this area uh, would make a big difference at a population okay, level. OK, so what about the parents who'll be listening to this and say, well, look, it's only one day. One day doesn't matter. If you eat four Easter eggs on Easter Sunday, so be it. Uh, I think 
uh, that attitude and that approach, it's 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 wheeled out. It's a narrative. It's flawed because what the food and drinks industry are creating is a, a daily consumption of these products. And then when you come to a special occasion like Halloween, like Christmas, like Easter, the only way uh, to, in inverted commas, make it special is to go vulgar <laughs> okay. in terms of the, the size of these yep. eggs. Uh, the, the number mm-hmm. of these eggs and the way in which they're continually promoted. So, I've so been, we're grazing on the treats the whole way throughout the year, really now, because it's starting back so early. So it comes to the yeah. day, you have to go bigger. You have to go large. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same, you know, the, the we talk about, you know, the, the seven up and the soft drinks used come in at Christmas. Uh, they weren't. A daily, a year weekly thing. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you have to go go large, and and the food and drinks industry we've been arguing with uh, for over twenty years. And when they eventually said, "Look, we'll do something about portion size. We'll get rid of the king size Mars bar and the king size Snicker," and then you go into the shop and they have a duo, yes, which is exactly the same size, and they're saying, "Well, it's shareable," and we know that it's. You're sitting in your car with your duo, you're going to eat both of them. If you you have one half, your brain and and people don't understand how hardwired the brain is to be unable to resist the combination of high fat, high salt and high sugar. Mm. Uh, It it is you, you cannot stop. Okay, but let's talk about the food industry, maybe in a in a positive way for a moment, because the sugar tax on soft drinks that changed the formula and reduced the sugar in the drinks like it can be done. It can be done, but the only way that happened was through legislation and the food industry and drinks industry opposed the sugar tax uh, vehemently and very effectively for about a decade. And then when it came in, the reformulation was huge. So And it worked. And it worked. So consumption is, I mean, inverted commas, soft drinks is up, but the total sugar content that people are taking in is down. And we're beginning to see a levelling in, in our obesity uh, rates mm-hmm. and trends, which is positive and it's the first time we're kind of able to express that. Okay, well talk us through that a little bit. What's happening on that score? Well, what we had been looking at was almost a chase. The trajectory Ireland was on was a, a chase to catch America. We were kind of European leads in the chase for America who have about 33% obesity rates. Uh, in Ireland, we were in and around the kind of 23-24% in adults. That looks like it's edging down towards 20%, uh, which is very encouraging to, to see that beginning of that trend. And in children, we haven't seen in the UK, there was a COVID spike in, in weight in, in children mm-hmm. of school going age. Uh, we aren't seeing that in Irish kids. Again, that's positive. So I think in the, in the, in the wide, I think parents are doing a fantastic job uh, because one in four of our children have overweight or obesity, but four in five don't. Uh, and that's pretty good in the toxic environment that we have. Uh, so, but parents need to realise that at every turn, the food and drinks industry is trying to push them towards ultra processed. And if you're high on ultra processed food as a, as a child, your palate will reject broccoli. Mm-hmm. Your palate will reject, uh, you know, the whole foods that contain the vitamins and minerals that you need to grow healthily. Step away from the giant chocolate object and reach for some broccoli instead. I'm sure kids and adults all over Ireland will be following that mantra this Easter.
That's Professor Donal O'Shea, HSE lead on obesity, talking to Claire Byrne this morning about shops' big push to get us all to buy Easter eggs early and often. On this afternoon's Ray Darcy show, world champion swimmer Daniel Whiffen joined Ray in studio, along with Daniel's brother, Nathan, also a swimmer. Yeah, we've a world champion in studio, ladies and gentlemen. Should be a fanfare. Um, and he's brought his twin brother with him. Uh, Daniel Whiffen, good afternoon. Congratulations. Thank you. Good afternoon. Nathan Whiffen, good afternoon. Congratulations. Hello, everybody. <laughs> uh, it's mad because we were talking to Brendan there about Game of Thrones and he auditioned for it and he never got into it. But gee, we're in it. Yeah. Yeah, so b- before we get to the swimming, let's do the acting CV first. <laughs> yeah, so, so. What age were you? We, oh, we were young. We Did were... Oh, no, no, less than that. 12, 13 and 14. Right. Red Wedding scene in the Game of Thrones season three. And uh, yeah, we're only extras in it, but we, we're visible. So. Yeah. And the brilliant thing, I didn't know this because there's all these unwritten rules about acting and sets and all that sort of thing. Because you were under 18 when it came to mealtime. Oh, yeah. yeah. We uh, get, uh, well, so uh, we got to eat with all the famous actors. So we got to eat with Sean Bean. Uh, I don't know the other... I know Sean that, Bean... Wasn't in the first season. Well, he. Oh, that was the other one. That, that was the Frankenstein one. thing. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all a blur. <laughs> uh, listen, I, like I know Nathan, you look like you might qualify for the Olympics as well. Both you swim. Uh, obviously, your brother Daniel is the the world champion. Um, so Doha, uh, big time, and then back in Romania in, in December. Uh, world record breaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's been a mad couple of months, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been it's been crazy uh, these past couple of months. Obviously, December. Nathan's also first international competition. That yeah. was he made his. He's got one of the best Irish debuts ever with two European finals on his debut swimming for Ireland. But obviously, he came away with that world record at the end of the meet, three triple European champion, and then pushed on a couple of months there just last week, becoming double world champion in Doha. So. Uh, pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask, has it sunk in? But I think this has been in the making for quite some time. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we've always been pushing uh, those boundaries. Obviously, uh, six months ago, we came, we got two fourth places at the World Championships. But in the back of my mind, I've been always pushing to become a world champion and breaking a world record. And I've been, I think, dreaming of it ever since I was younger. And obviously... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's all because when you ask, um, you know, people what they want to be and they want to play for Manchester United, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and but when you were asked at a young age what you wanted to achieve, you said... Yeah, I want to break a world record. In swimming? Yeah. Right. Like, is that when you were eight, nine, seven, six? Uh, yeah, I think when I... Well, we started swimming capacity from when we were about 12. Right. So from 12 years old, I've always wanted to be a world record holder. And, right. um, well, I obviously achieved my dream in December. But so not, a world champion, a record holder, anything else you had on your list? Uh, Olympic champion. Right, right. So, uh, so it's two out of three. To to Olympics as well. well. And to go. And to that go was to the Olympics, yes, but yes. yeah, that was the step to becoming an Olympic champion. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, two out of three done so far. And well, we'll it's the right year to complete the third, but yeah. we'll have to see. So is there a swimming gene in the Whiffen ancestry? <laughs> Well, the best, my mum did swim, but did she, she? she didn't really, she wasn't very good. Well, she might say she was, but, <laughs> and then, uh, but I guess we've got something, maybe it's just the twins thing, I don't know. Well, our older brother swam. Well, my older brother swam yeah. as well, sorry. My yeah. dad can't swim, 
So we tried to teach him and it didn't work out. Right. Can he swim? He can't well, swim. He, he can't. He can do bait. He can float. I wouldn't right. call it swimming. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested about the twin thing and training because I would imagine to get to your level, if you're on your own, swimming training can be quite a lonely occupation. But to have, you know, your twin brother with you, is that, is that part of it, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm never really lonely. We're, we're literally, obviously, yes. today, we're literally with <laughs> yeah, each other yeah. the whole time. And uh, we live together. We do the same course in university. In we train yeah. yeah. We yeah. train together. Uh, we do, we literally do everything together. And um, swimming is a, quite an individual sport, maybe you'd say. But um, in the background, when you're training, it is very much a team sport. Everybody's doing the same session. We have 12 guys in our university program all who swim 1500 and we're just going at each other all the time in training, racing every single rep and uh, it's just so fun. So, so of a morning you'll... Did I get this right? Because I was watching your YouTube channel and I think you said and that you'd swam seven kilometres of one morning. Oh, is that, uh, is that it? Uh, <laughs> was that, is that, is that, could you have... Is that, would you oh, 100%. We, swim, right. we swim at least... Seven will be on the low end, to be honest. In a more seven kilometers, how many lengths of the pool is that? Oh, oh. I, don't, I don't even know. <laughs> I'm not good at maths, uh, but uh, a lot, a lot. A little, a little, but we normally do eight to nine k at least a session. Oh, wow! <laughs> in a couple of weeks, we'll be going up to maybe a hundred k a week. Yeah, in altitude, we do that hundred k in a week. So yeah. you're going to Arizona? Yeah, yeah. And so, why Arizona in particular? Uh, well, we know, we used to go to Europe, but they don't seem to want to because uh, they don't want to let us back. I think it's because we got too fast, and they don't want us to be there, mate. <laughs> they don't want us to trade in their facilities because we're oh, think, you're too dir- good. Direct competition with yeah. their swimmers. So we, yeah, we had to America, a longer flight, eleven hours, and then uh, yeah, we got the mountain in Flagstaff in Arizona, and it's about two thousand one hundred yeah, meters above sea level. And will will that matter? The fact that you're at at altitude, Nathan. Oh, it makes such a difference. I think like uh, me and Dan also respond to altitude training really well. It'll help her increase your aerobic capacity when you're swimming. So yeah. say we're, we're doing 100K, but that's like, I know that it's so much harder than swimming yeah. sea level. It'd be like, like equivalent of doing like 160K at sea level. I, I feel like you get that benefit, but. What do you think of when you're swimming? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of laugh. <laughs> the golden question. I think everybody wants to know. Do, but, yeah. Uh, oh, sometimes I sing a song. Right. Sometimes I rewatch a movie that I can remember. In your head. Yeah. yeah. Just close so, my eyes and yeah. We, we do some of our eyes closed sometimes when we train. Yeah. Which is quite weird because people say, how do you swim your eyes closed? You're not looking where you're going. Yeah. But I, when I swim anyway, I can't see because I don't wear my glasses. So. <laughs> right. Um, I, I, you're wearing your PTSB uh, top because mm-hmm. you're a team uh, Ireland ambassador um, uh, and they're bringing the, the team to the Olympics in, mm-hmm. in Paris. How many have you, are you counting down days? Uh, it's it's just turned five months right. un- until the Olympic Games, but yeah, obviously permanent TSB ambassador, great great help to me, and um, we're really looking forward to these Paris Games, and hopefully it won't just be me on the plane; it'll be two of us. Yeah, you've qualified already, have you? Yeah, and you have to qualify. Yeah, yeah. in uh, just under three months now, right. I got so yeah, size uh, and stuff. Swimmers and brothers Daniel and Nathan Whiffen talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon about World Championship winning medals as well as their hopes for the upcoming Olympics in Paris. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, it's the 29th of February. But why is it the 29th of February? 
Claire Byrne was joined by Professor David Malone with the Department of Mathematics and Statistics in Maynooth University this morning to talk about the whys and whats of Leap Day. So I think people generally have a vague idea of about why we have this uh, Leap Day every, every four years, but we want to know exactly, exactly. why happening. we have it. So the aim again here is our calendar tracks the seasons. uh, We want to know that in June it's going to be warm and sunny and in December it's going to be cold and miserable. Mm -hmm. And we have lots of traditions around that and the kind of things we do at different times of year depend on the weather. So we would like our calendar to track that. But one of the important issues that we're trying to track is when the equinox is. That's when the days are more or less the same length. And uh, the, the time between equinoxes turns out not to be a whole number of days, which makes it a little bit tricky to track. So for a long time, people have known it's about 365 days. It's about 365 and a quarter days. So you need about one day every four years. But it's not exactly 365 and a quarter either, which complicates the whole thing a little yeah. bit more. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, why then was the decision taken to create, push this day in every four years? So the Romans had a system where they would try to track the seasons and they had months and their year was originally about 355 days, which is not a very very close to 365. The reason for that is probably actually due to the moon. That's a 355 is about what you get if you track your months using the moon. Mm-hmm. And they had to put in an extra month every so often to keep the calendar in line with the seasons. And this was kind of a political decision for them. You know, anything that disrupts people's daily lives is a complicated political thing to deal with. Very complicated and very disruptive. I would very disruptive and viewed as bad luck as well. Okay. And so, for instance, they would t- traditionally not put in a leap month, which they needed, if Rome was at war with somebody. And Andy. so you would have, you know, you would get left out. And and so when Julius Caesar uh, came back from fighting all his wars and everything was settled down and he was soundly in control, he went, right, this is a mess. We're going to reform it all. And he said, we're going to have a leap year every four years. And that was messed up a little bit at the start. But by 44 AD, they had a system where you got a leap year every four years, mm-hmm. which was pretty well in line with the astronomical information that they had. And had they were time. happy then after some pretty, time that they that it worked. They it, 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 So once they had it up and running and they knew initially, I think they did once every three years by accident and then they got it running properly. And uh, that was a pretty satisfactory system. It was keeping the spring equinox in March, which was an important time for the uh, spring equinox is an important time for a lot of people because it, it has an impact. You know, the day is getting longer. It's good for firming and getting out and doing work and things mm-hmm. like this. So people want that in March is the gist of what's Well, when on. you came in there, I, I was asking you whether this uh, day impacts us at all because when the clocks go back and forward, it yeah. changes how we feel for maybe a, d- it, a day or two. It does. So the, the clocks going back and forwards changes when we drag ourselves out of bed and what time we get the daylight relative to when we've got out of bed. And uh, the extra day doesn't do that at all. We've kept it lined up with the days. Our bedtimes and uh, going to uh, bedtimes and rising times don't change. So it really doesn't have a uh, impact on our biology at all. We just get on with it. We get on with it. It's fine. So it doesn't happen every four years. Just to overcomplicate this, it happens every four years, but it doesn't. It doesn't. So this is the rule that most of us learn in school, and indeed that any of us have seen working, is that we get a leap year if the year is divisible by four. Mm -hmm. And that's run for a very long time. It turns out that that's out by about one day every hundred years, a little bit less than that. So when the Romans settled the thing about zero AD, yeah. Uh, everything is nicely in line the way they want it. But every hundred years, it's getting out of step by about a day. And 
you would wonder why would everybody, anyone care by, about being out by a day? So 100 years out by a day, who cares? But after 1,500 years, you're out by nearly 15 days. In fact, you're out by about 10 days is what it comes to. And that's becoming an issue because the equinox is not where you think it should be, about the 21st of March. And in fact, it's more like uh, it's got back to the about 9th of March. And people are getting worried because uh, the equinox determines when we hold Easter. And so it's a religious question about are we doing the right thing for our calendar? Are we celebrating Easter at the right time? Mm -hmm. So that was why that question needed to be settled. That's it. So Pope Gregory took a look at it. It had been known for a while, but he got good advice uh, on how to reform the thing. And so the rule actually is that you get a leap year once every four years, unless it's a century. And if it's a century... If it's divisible by 400, it is a leap year, but otherwise it's not. So mm -hmm. that means 1900 was not, uh, 1800 was not, 2000 was because it was divisible by 400. And so we lived actually through quite an uh, uh, unusual event for a century being a leap year. So when are we next skipping a leap year? We're skipping a leap year in 2100. Okay, 2100. Yeah. We, we won't have to worry about worry that. Worry about it. We'll all be retired. What would happen if we didn't take the leap day every four years? Um, what would the, that look like? It was the uh, the equinox drifts much, much more quickly there. It drifts by a day every four years. And so you've got a real problem that the equinox would drift back through the year. So January would drift into summertime in Eventually. this part of the world. Yes. OK. Uh, you it. see that a little bit, say, the Islamic calendar that's used to calculate when Ramadan is. Mm -hmm. It's set up. It doesn't actually care about the seasons. It's set up to care about the moon because that's the important thing. And uh, you see Ramadan moves by about 10 days every year because that calendar tracks the moon uh, rather than the sun. And so Ramadan this year is in March, but in another, I think, 10 years, it'll be in November. And so you'll get an effect like that. Professor David Malone from the Department of Mathematics and Statistics, Maths and Stats at Maynooth University with the science and religion behind Leap Day on Today with Claire Byrne this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Sheridan. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. I'll be back with more ramblings at the same location tomorrow. Until then, thank you for listening and good luck. <laughs>